Sorry, I wrote a TCP server the other day. In Go or C? Python. I'm sorry. Do you hate yourself? <laughs> Only a little. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brenda Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about practice. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, reliability, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. The industry is moving fast. Make the right moves with the experience of 42lines.net. So I wanted to kick this episode off with a quote that I've, I've heard variously attributed over the years, and I finally dug around a little bit. But the quote is, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. Can that be like the motto for our entire podcast? <laughs> Probably. It, it's so illustrative of so many things that, yeah, I mean, it, works, it worked on my laptop, or it works in theory. And one of the things that I find most challenging about a new environment or a new piece of software or a new anything is the mechanical act of doing the thing. As in deployment? Mm -hmm. CI? Make files? I mean, we've, we've all had that terror of, okay, I've been asked to, to, push a, to push my commit to a build system that I don't know, and I have to then go figure out where the build system is and how it works and how the approval system works, and how do I raise a PR in this, and okay, and now... What form do I need in triplicate? And then what is the, the culture of the company that I'm working at? How is it... How do reviews go? Are they super hard-nosed about it? Are they really, you know, just sort of clicking approve and we'll deal with it later? Like, how does that work? And there's a lot of tension and fear that comes from, that is anticipation of never having actually done the thing before, never having actually deployed whichever production app or stood up a new version or tested your backups. Um, in practice, there's there's no replacement for it. There's no replacement for actually doing the things occasionally. Well, they always say, you know, practice makes perfect, but it's also you just, even when you've set it up, if you don't do it frequently, when you come back, you're, uh, how did I do this again? Even if you built the thing. Yeah, a couple of jobs ago, Ken, we were working at an organization that their DR plan was tested by failing over between the active and passive pairs frequently. And the idea was, right. if every month we've failed over, when it comes time to do it in anger, well, it's just another failover. We've, we've, just, we've been doing this mechanically like every month for the last couple of years, so it's easy. Yep. I have only worked for one organization that had detailed plans as far as this outage occurs. How do we restart the data center, switch over to the secondary data center? And that's kind of scary. Well, if you think about it, though, how often does an organization really get to practice starting from <laughs> everything's turned off? What well, you order mean forced do we... practice, and that's rare. <laughs> well, you... sometimes more frequently than you care to think. It's not the kind of practice you want to get, but <laughs> no, um, it's not. At the org that Ken and I were at a couple of years, uh, a couple of jobs ago, we had an event where they were doing generator testing, and they they failed the 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 data center over to the other generator, and the transfer switch failed. And so they're doing UPS maintenance, and they had the generators up, and they they hit the switch, and they flipped things over, and the transfer switch failed. And so the entire data center went dark for like 35 minutes. So there was nothing. Yeah. And we're you all haven't like, worked if you don't have a good data center yeah. story involving a failed ATS switch. But, you know, that that's good practice of yeah. what order do things come back up in? 
well, you need DNS pretty early in, in the boot up process. Yeah. Otherwise, things just don't work. Like, that's that really just, early. It's always step one. And my old manager would go into his closet, and there was this tear-off whiteboard piece of rolled-up long paper in a tube that he would pull out of the tube and unroll and spread it on the wall. Mm-hmm. It's like, and the first thing on that list, DNS. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, you're looking at making sure your time, your time sources are synchronized and you have networking and your DHCP reservations or whatever your IP address assignment system is working, assuming you're using that. And basically, you get the picture. Like, you go in, in kind of order of dependency, but those dependency graphs are tangled. Right. With modern cloud deployments, with folks looking at microservices and multiple layers yeah. of abstraction and containers. Wow. And sometimes the best thing is, as the infrastructure has grown over time, that dependency tree can be a nice loop. Yeah, that that's never a place you ever want to hang out. Yeah. But the other thing is, it's not just can you bring the things back up. That's assuming that you can bring, th- bring them back up. Uh, we had an experience where uh, one of the guys called in, he got a page that the drive was out. And he goes goes in and calls back, who do I call when it's raining in the data center? Because the water main, the floor above, had busted. And the path of least resistance turned out to be right through the ceiling of the data center. Have you practiced those backups? And that was the thing. It was water came down through two racks. And the machines were just trash. As well Our as... DR plan is perfect and flawless. Now, does anyone yeah. have a boat? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, after you get the room dry, you have to start rebuilding and bringing things back up and restoring. But this is and also the reason... learn a lot. This is also the reason that in the industry we say that a backup isn't a backup until you've tested a restore. It's because if you don't have practice in actually seeing how does the tape loader work? How does that library, how does that old horrible, you know, library that we've been using for years, how well does it reread the tape data? Is it actually functioning? You don't know until you've actually restored a file or two. You've practiced the idea of, oh, I need you to go back and chew a tape from three weeks ago and get whatever it is. doesn't really matter. And Okay, guys, you're showing your age. Yeah. <laughs> but the same thing can be said for Glacier. Have you done a Glacier Restore? Do you know how not to download 15 terabytes in an archive? Oh. One of the really interesting things that I like about 42 Lines that just seems to be kind of a, a super secret that I kind of want to, you know, scream from the mountaintops is that like any other company doing software development, they have a, a process for setting up a QA machine that is able to clone the existing database so that when you're testing and developing new features, you can actually work against a safe copy of, of real data. And any of us that has been in the field long enough, it's really hard to reproduce bugs at the scale that we often work at without having access yeah. to that, to feed that real data through your system. Amusingly this enough. this is actually their backup system. The way they snapshot their databases and store backups of those, every time a QA machine is built, more than once a day, one of those backups is chosen and cloned to the QA machine and restored automatically. So not only do we have the ability to build QA machines often and frequently with a recent copy of production data or whichever data, we're also testing our backups. Amusingly, I reviewed a PR this morning that was adding a anonymization feature to our database backup script for exactly this purpose. So when 
a backend or front-end dev needs to test something, we can go pull yep, actual data, but not give them customer keys and account numbers and you know email addresses SSMs and all of the things that are sensitive. And passwords. Yeah, you, you, you don't want to do that. But, yeah. but you want to give them actual structured data that has real levels of use in it so they can understand what they're developing against and try to recreate specific sets of bugs. It's important. But that is a wonderful way to A, practice your backups here in the modern cloud infrastructure and give your developers and QA folks a tool in their, in, an arrow in their quiver to do their job better. One of the other big things you have to do is can you, you know, bring everything up from scratch? As I mentioned earlier, you can build in loops. Well, you can do that with Terraform easy enough as things grow that you end up with a dependency loop. And unless you every now and then bring up the entire stack you don't know if you've built those in because they don't always show up you don't know if it's going to resolve or it's going to throw an error you don't know what thing has been out there so long that it's not in this code anymore or you know there's i have heard people justify terraform so many times by that very reason if we need to recreate our infrastructure we just you know point to a new region and boom right. but pro tip if and you've then never they never actually practice it yeah if, yeah. if you've never actually done it if you've never done the exercise to point it at a different region and run it, you don't actually have a DR plan. You have, well, so right. you, you have a plan. You've never tested it. You don't know if it works. Or then by creating the same resources in an alternate region that still interferes with production and oh, cloud providers. Right. Well, none of this is particularly easy. And because it's kind of scary and daunting and it's complex, it makes people hesitant to just sort of do it. And that's why... Again, practice is important. And if you build systems from the beginning to say, yeah, I'm going to create, I'm going to pull my, my backups frequently and I'm going to anonymize them and restore them so I can develop against them. And you make that part of the build cycle early. It means that everybody's comfortable with the idea that this function just works and we use it all the time and it's an easy practiced, well-oiled machine and not the, oh, um, we got to wake up the MySQL guy and figure out how do we do backups. How do we do a restore? And their yeah, first question, of course, before. is yeah. And their first question, of course, is so. What's your most recent backup? And you go, um, we do backups. Yeah, I think they're in S three. I know everybody uses the cloud now, but you know, bare metal still exists. And it wasn't too long ago I worked at a place that everything was bare metal and had a DR contract with somebody to provide hardware in case of an emergency yes tapes still went to iron mountain every day and once a year a stack of tapes got shipped off to a remote site and we went through the process of bringing everything back up from tape from tape we started on somebody else's hardware to and restored everything back to running multiple architectures multiple vendors you know suns and linux and windows and oracle and you know brought everything back up not saying we were successful but we tried but you you always learned something and through the entire time i worked for the organization every year it got better and that's the magic of practice right there there it is the other thing is you know if it is dr it's probably not just work that's in disaster and doing this stuff while family issues are going on because, you know, it is a hurricane that just wiped out everything. And you still have to try to get some work in because you're functional enough. But maybe your life isn't all the way back to normal. 
you know, having that practice certainly goes a long way when there's lots of distraction involved. Or, if I know I can recreate the database at, you know, a drop of a hat with a couple of command incantations, even if I'm stressed out with, you know, Homer pairs and family stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's three in the morning and the database is corrupt and your options are go through and manually edit tables or restore from a backup from 20 minutes ago. Right. And you say, well, we're going to lose 20 minutes of data, but I know that it's going to be clean moving forward and I can see it. It's a snapshot restore. And, it, and it's a faster path out. And so you, it gives you real world practical ways to not spend all of your time sweating. Um, there are also some less technical reasons that practice is really good. Although I think they're just as important. And for me, the first one is absolutely interviewing. I interview for jobs even when I have no intention of taking them. And I will admit that freely because it gives you practice in getting a resume together, answering the questions, showing up, looking professional, being on time, giving like eye contact, all of those things that you, you don't always get practice doing. And it is extraordinarily helpful in getting the job you want instead of the job that you have to have right now because you need a paycheck. And interviewing is such a social game, especially for some of us that aren't the social butterflies that folks might imagine us as. Yeah, interviewing is an important skill to practice, but it's a difficult skill to practice because you might end up with with opportunities you didn't plan on having. Well, that I, I consider that that's a fringe benefit. Fringe I, benefit, pay raise. <laughs> well, it, it can happen that you are not actively looking for a new job, but you have your resume in order and you throw a name into the, into the hat because, hey, this could be interesting enough. And if if nothing else, it gives me, gives me practice interviewing. And if I'm not a good fit, they're just they're just not going to make me an, an offer. But I get the practice doing it. But occasionally, and I get to be familiar with more companies mm-hmm. and get to know more people in the same field as myself. There are and lots it, of benefits to that. And then occasionally they make you an offer, and you say, "Well, you know, I'm not really looking for a job right now." So, and you you throw out a number, and if they say yes, well, suddenly you got yourself a nice raise. The other thing is, you guys both do it, which I don't, and that's presenting at conferences and stuff, and. Getting up in front of people is something I don't do, and I. But when it has to happen, I'm horrible at it because I don't do it. And it's it is another thing that that's it takes practice to get comfortable, to get used to the mechanics. And so I need to haul you up on stage if I get accepted for the uh, conferences I've submitted um, presentations to. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Please no. <laughs> the thing is, you don't want to, and part of the reason that I but I should. Honestly, part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast that we're talking on right now in the beginning is that I have always spoken way too fast in my life. And this gives me a chance to practice speaking slowly, well, slowly enough, speaking clearly, enunciating, thinking through what I'm saying, not umming and and, and whatever through all of the different pieces of... Oh, you can so tell that I'm thinking about what I'm saying when I sound like Captain Kirk. <laughs> And for me, it causes me to use words that aren't four letters because that would be bad. Yes. But again, it gives you that, that, that practice and that confidence of I'm sitting here in front of a microphone, I'm being heard clearly, and then you find yourself in a meeting where everybody's remote now because welcome to the new world order, and you have a reasonable audio setup. People can hear you clearly, and you speak clearly, and just having a relaxing and reliable voice can do you wonders professionally so again there there are benefits to all of these pieces 
and now it is your voice that is the first thing because nobody sees you anymore. Well, some places still do. Um, or some places are doing video for their their conference calling. So I I do keep some button up shirts and. I have it on me. good authority that Brendan has added some uh, stage lighting and photography lighting to his workstation <laughs> setup at his house so that he looks better on the Zoom calls. I can't deny that. <laughs> Again, it's a performance art, and you get better at it by practicing. So, practice. Just like making music. There are a lot of musicians out in the world, even in the IT field. You become a better musician by regularly practicing and regularly performing with groups. I've been singing since i was three years old yeah i've in my 50s to taken up martial arts and that very much is you you do the moves over and over again to where you don't think about them and it's practice practice same thing over and over and create muscle memory and it's the same with work you do it over you get it so you can do it with less thinking so it's easier to notice the exceptions and the the nuances that oh this is going to go wrong down the road I mean, like when you're when you're learning a new programming language, what you're doing is you're practicing writing code in that language, and so you're starting to see how the language works and how it feels and how it how it interacts with memory and disk and everything else. So when somebody says, "Okay, the code you wrote is really slow, or it's it's crashing a lot, or whatever's going on," you have a better idea of what kinds of problems and how that particular language approaches those problems. Being able to practice. Uh, multi-threaded, multi-process programming and execution. Okay, today I find myself in a different language that I'm used to. I'm still doing some multi-threaded work, but I still understand those same concepts because I've practiced that coding style and I sort of know what to look for and have a feeling about you know, what, what threading primitive do I need to add where to build the effect that I'm used to from, from programming Go, for example. Sorry, I wrote a TCP server the other day. In Go or C? Python. I'm sorry. Do you hate yourself? <laughs> Only a little. But another interesting thing to practice that I've stumbled on recently is practice using your editor. Your editor is your Swiss army knife fancy sword of, of how you slay whatever monster you're working with. Whether it's code or Terraform or documentation, or any sort of work that we do in this field, we all stare at a text editor for eight hours a day. The number of people in this field that don't realize that text editors have regular expression find and replace just baffles me. It's like, <laughs> I've guys, used it's in Vim there. for as long as I've really been Linux. That editor just, it works for me. I have the muscle memory for it. I never really have seriously considered other editors. There was a, a time where I could move around and, and work well in Emacs, but it never stuck with me. But I've been using Vim for more than 20 years. But pro tip, and Vim has built-in said. Built-in said and built-in other things. And there's lots of little things I do with Vim that are just muscle memory at this point. But really, I am a pretty poor Vim user. I've always have been. Turns out the arrow keys, they work in insert mode. Um, and <laughs> while we've been you know, here in COVID quarantine time, one of the things that I've been doing is just doing some basic study with Vim and write and make some of my own cheat sheets rather than cobble crib somebody else's because uh, that never works. 
do some basic learning and figure out some of the more advanced features about Vim. And the last few days at work, okay, I need to comment out this block of code. You know, I could use the arrow keys a lot and make lots of loud sounds on my IBM Model M keyboard, or I can use visual mode. And I've been taking the time to, okay, I can do this with visual mode, control V. This is how I select where the hash marks go and remind myself how to insert the hash marks that way. And it's slower to to do that kind of practice, but I'm coming out of it a better Vim user. Well, I was thrown a curve earlier this year that I am required to shell into a Windows machine to do certain operations of my job. And so, okay, well, you're on a Windows machine. Wait, you can shell into Windows? Yeah, I was having trouble parsing that Sorry. sentence as um, valid. Citrix Remote Desktop. It, I'm, I'm treating the entire thing as a shell because basically what I'm using it for is a command line proxy and a window into IntelliJ and Notepad++. So it's effectively a text editor and a shell. And you'd be surprised at some of the things are awkward coming from the environments that we're used to. But like even Notepad++ has regular expression, find search, like search and replace. It has all the things that you really need in there. They're in different places and you have to hunt for them a little bit but they're there. And once you get your mind wrapped around the idea that this is an editor, and if I practice looking for the things and not just doing it the stupid way, the, oh, we need to do, we need to do 500 alter table statements in MySQL. Well, I'll just, sure. I'll either throw it into, into the Linux machine that I can remote to from the Windows machine, which is always fun. Um, why, and why use 500 <laughs> P... Or in Notepad plus plus, you can you, they have all the tools you need there. If you're if that's that's what you're more comfortable with, we'll say, and it works. So practice, find the find the tools, find the things that will make your life easier, and say there has to be a better way to do this. Well, there probably is, and start digging. Yeah, especially being able to hone the tools that you use every day, and to hone the practices of. How do you write a threaded TCP server if that's in your your quiver of arrows? Um, how to scale applications in AWS? How to use GCP effectively? So in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. But practice we do anyway. If at first you don't succeed, try reading the directions. If at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Dusendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. No one practices nano. <laughs> Ha <laughs>